Well, I would ask you to take your Bibles and turn them to Romans chapter 8. So if you have one, go ahead and turn it to Romans 8. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and the book of Romans. Find the big number 8. We're going to be in verses 31 and 32. I am very excited, very privileged to be able to preach my two favorite verses in the entire Bible. So looking forward to that. Uh, It is Mother's Day. I've been thinking a little bit about my mom. And I could say a lot of things about her. One thing I was thinking about, though, kind of related to this message, is my mom is, she's kind of matter of fact. She's, she's logical. She's not overly emotional. And uh, I don't know if I always understood her logic, though. Like, she, she went, <laughs> there were a couple of things in our home. So I'm one of five boys, right, the oldest of five boys. She had this rule, no ball in the house. Any moms have that rule? Probably a few of you, okay? Well... Obviously, we couldn't have a ball in the house, but couldn't we take socks or T-shirts and ball them up and, t- and do duct tape around it? I mean, it's not a ball, Mom. That's what we would say. And she'd be like, listen, it acts like a ball. You're treating it like a ball. It does the same damage that a ball does. It's a ball. So I, she just was so matter of fact. And uh, she wasn't like, oh, that's so cute that my kids were creative. No, she was like, it's a ball. So matter, you know. So I didn't always get my mom's logic. One time... Um, I had a paper out as a, as a teen, you know, middle school and high schooler. And my mom was pretty clear about the fact that you decided to get this paper out. So you're going to do the paper out. Don't be telling me to come drive you around. You're going to ride your bike. You're going to do your paper out. So one particular morning, I, I walked downstairs. It was totally dark. It was pitch dark. I walked into the kitchen. And though it was dark and I couldn't see, I could feel that my shoelace was untied. So I bent down to tie my shoelace. And as I bent down, it was like, and I smacked my head right on the table that was apparently there. I didn't know the table was there. So I started to feel a little dizzy. I went to the bathroom, and also my, my forehead was wet. And so I, look at, I turned the light on in the bathroom, and sure enough, there's like some blood trickling down my forehead. So I go to my mom, and I say, Mom, my head is bleeding. Will you drive me around to do my paper out? What do you think she said? No, she said, you got the paper out. It's your paper out. Drive your bike or ride your bike and do your paper out. And I was like, Mom... I wasn't looking for my mom's logic. I was looking for my mom's compassion, okay? Um, I want you to know my mom was very loving too, okay? I don't want to paint her in a bad light. She was very loving. But she just had this logic, and I don't know if I always agreed or understood. I kind of struggled with it. Now, when we come to Romans chapter 8, we've been walking through Romans 8, and Romans 8 is a logical argument that Paul is making. The whole thing is this, this series of logical arguments and As we look at it, 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 it's words written by the Holy Spirit. So this is beautiful logic. It's perfect logic. But sometimes we're struggling a little bit with this logic. We're not sure that we we get the logic. And though Romans is so logical, we're we're wanting a little bit of love too. And uh, we'll see today there is a lot of love. And, and of course, in the next few verses that will be in in, in, uh, following weeks, it's a lot of love, okay? But... This logic can sometimes be a struggle. Like, okay, I can follow the argument. I get it, Paul, but I'm, I'm, my, own, my life is tough. Like, I'm going through some stuff that I just, I'm not sure that I like it or I'm not sure that I agree with this logic. So Paul continues to write. He knows that his readers have some lingering questions. We can see that, the way in which he writes. And so he knows that they're still struggling a little bit. He continues the argument. And I would say probably some of you still have some lingering questions. Some of us still have some lingering questions, and so Paul 
carries on in verse 31 and 32. So I want you to look at that with me. Romans 8, verse 31 and 32. And these are just beautiful, beautiful words. And I hope you've been with us and you've been able to, to hear what we've, you know, the, the word of God up to this point. But here we go in verse 31 and 32. Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? He's basically saying, what, what is our response? What are we going to do with all this beautiful logic and this, this rationale? What are we going to do with it? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is God's word. Now, as, but before we get into Paul's argument here, before we get into his logical argument, I just want to first acknowledge our questions. All right? We have questions. Notice the very first phrase here, Romans 8.31a says, what then shall we say to these things? I absolutely love, I love that Paul gives us these little mental breaks. Because this is the fifth time that Paul has inserted this little phrase in the book of Romans. He'll say, what are we going to say to this? What shall we say then? Why does he write that? He's interacting with his readers so that you and I and the original readers would read this letter and say, and he's kind of saying, guys, what are you going to do with this? Like, what is your response to this? He's conversing with them. He's checking in on them. He, he's, he's, I think this is necessary because you've been getting a lot of stuff in Romans. Like, it's been coming at you every single week. So what are you going to do with that? And how are you processing this? Just the style of this section of Romans is quite interesting. I want you to notice if you have your Bible open, uh, you'll see this. He's using questions. And why use questions? Starting in verse 31, he starts to give us, you'll see question marks and I think just about every English translation, okay? Little question marks. Why? These are rhetorical questions. And if you remember back to, to literature class, a rhetorical question is one where the answer isn't expected because the answer is assumed or the answer seems to be obvious. So just the, the, the fact that Paul writes this in question form is kind of a nod to the fact that we have questions. We struggle with even Romans 8, as beautiful as it has been, trying to make sense of it all and put it into our lives and, and get it. Just look at your text if you have your Bible open. Starting in verse 31, you have a series of questions. Verse 31, basically what he's saying is, what about all that's against us? What he said, it's what he's asking in, in a weird kind of different way. Verse 32, will God give us what we need? That's the fundamental question that humans are asking, Christians are asking. Verse 33 and 34, will someone condemn us? Okay, God, you're going to do this for us, but what if somebody rises up who condemns us? What if Satan condemns us? Verse 35, will something separate us from God's love? Could anything separate us from God's love? So, so Paul's writing with these questions, and, and he's doing so because he knows that it's not a slam dunk in some people's minds. You're, you're struggling with this. And I've been talking with some of you in our congregation, and I know that you're wrestling through the book of Romans. You're struggling to say, okay, I know God works all things together for good for those who love God, but I, I'm not sure, God, how this is going to work. And I get that theologically and hypothetically. I understand the truths, but like, I don't know if I can feel it right now. These truths in Romans 8 are not divorced from real life. They're not just something for those in the ivory tower to debate. No, they could not be more practical. 
And sometimes life seems anything but logical for us, from our vantage point anyway. There are families who have prayed for children their entire upbringing. They've prayed for their children. They've brought their children to Jesus. Some of them have probably dedicated their children on this stage like we just did. And yet right now they are far from Jesus. They're not walking with him. And it's heartbreaking for parents. I think about parents in this congregation who have children who struggle with depression. That's hard as a parent. God, why would you let my kid have this this struggle, this ongoing struggle? Couples who deeply desire to be parents, but God hasn't made the way yet. People who fought for their marriage, but they're losing the battle. And some people who have already lost the battle. So, so God, okay, I, I'm hearing all these words from Romans 8. What do I do about that? I have questions. Now, Romans 8 has always been one of my favorite chapters of Scripture. So even if you would have asked me as a teen, what's your favorite Scripture? You know, they'd, they'd go around, what's your life verse? I'd be like, oh, no, I'm supposed to have a life verse. I don't know. But Romans 8 was a chapter I always loved, Psalm 73. Those are two of my favorite chapters. So always I've loved Romans 8. But Romans 8, 31 and 32 became my two favorite verses of Scripture in November of 2013. And, and some of you know this, uh, some of you may not, but I lost my little brother uh, at the age of 23 in 2013. And, and I can remember, um, you know, he, it was, it was a, in the evening and he was in a boating accident and I got a call early in the morning like, we can't find Ben. Everyone else made it to shore, but, but Ben, they, he was lost. He, so we rushed up to the lake as soon as we could and we spent the next day and a half, which I'll be honest, it seemed like a week and a half or much longer, just standing on the shore waiting for divers to try to find his body. And it was in that time of, of just standing around, like, what do you do? You pray. You can't go help him. You just wait. And as we waited, God brought these verses to my mind. You know, and, and I could not stop thinking about this idea of he, God, who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us, graciously give us all things? And by that, I didn't mean that, God, I know you're going to bring Ben back somehow. Maybe he's somewhere. Maybe he's not in the water. You know, I, I, yeah, I wanted that. I wanted some kind of weird scenario to be true. But I was starting to come to grips with, you know, as time went on, that that was not going to happen and that he, he had perished. And so then it was like, well, how do I make, how, what do I do with this? How do I even process this? And I'm like, God, I don't have anything right now. And I've been to Bible college and seminary and stuff. And like, what do I do? And this verse for me was like, it was like an anchor. It was like handles I could hold on to. It was like, well, I don't know what you're doing, God. Honestly, Romans 8.28 didn't help me in that moment. It was just too raw. Yeah, God works all things together for good. But right then, it was just too raw. I, I, that, that verse wasn't doing it for me. I went a couple verses later, and it was like, okay, God, I know you gave me Jesus. I know that you did not spare your own son. So I just got to trust you that you're going to do something with this, right? So these verses became so intensely personal, and not just during that week or that month, but I started to realize that there was nothing the rest of my life that these verses would not apply to, all things, it says. So that's why I had my daughter paint for me those uh, two verses, and it's in my office, and it's just a special passage to me. And this could not be more practical for you, whether it be in this very moment or in the weeks and months and years to come. Now, when Paul says, what shall we say to these things, what's he, what's he referring to? Definitely, he's referring to the last couple of verses, right? Verses 28, 29, 30. But he's also talking about the whole chapter, Romans 8. 
And some even believe he's talking about everything in Romans up to this point. Like what has Paul talked about in Romans? What has God given us in Romans? And some of you, it's Mother's Day. You might be brand new to our church and you're not caught up. So let me just very briefly give you bullet points of what has happened in Romans that we're supposed to process and say, what am I going to do about that? So here's where it starts in the book of Romans. All humans are born sinners. And because they're sinners, they're guilty before God. They've broken his law, whether they know they've broken his law or they don't. They still stand before God, guilty, it says. That's chapters one through three, A. A lot shorter than our series, right? There you go. That's, that's one through three. Uh, three B through five is the way to be right with God is not through our own efforts. We can't do righteousness that's acceptable to God, so rather we need a righteousness that comes apart from the law, the Bible says. That's Jesus' righteousness. And if we trust in what Jesus did on the cross in our place as our substitute, now we have this righteousness that doesn't come from us, comes by simply by faith in Jesus Christ. This is what brings peace with God. That's through verse five, or chapter five. Then we come into chapter six and seven. Once we realize that it's not our obedience, it's Christ's obedience, there might be the temptation for somebody to say, well, I guess I don't have to obey God then, right? Because this is Jesus' thing. And so if it's Jesus' obedience and not mine, I guess I don't have to obey? And Paul says, absolutely not. You, you've identified with Christ. You died with Christ and you've been raised with Christ. And so you're, you're supposed to live a new life. You're supposed to walk with God. Yet, chapter 6 through 7, we still struggle with sin. We still battle with it. We still fight it. And we will until the day that we die and we're taken to heaven and we're changed. And we're new. And our, and our souls are crying out for that day. In fact, the Bible says the whole universe is groaning and crying out. We want this to be new. We want this to be different. The, the, the day when all the sad things will come untrue, as we mentioned. That's what, the, what us and the universe longs for. So until that day, how do we live? We come into chapter 8. And we start to see that until that day that we're changed, we have this consolation that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, chapter 8, verse 1. God's already done these things for us. For the believer, chapter 8 is what has happened and what God gives us consolation with. There's no condemnation, and there never will be. He's already freed us from that condemnation. He's adopted us as children. We see adoption in chapter 8. And he's given us this Holy Spirit who lives in us, who intercedes for us, who, who prays for us in, in prayers that are much more effective than our prayers. Verse 28, we, come, we came into this a few weeks ago. He's working all things together for good. For those that love God, those that are called according to his purpose. And then verse 29, last week, that golden chain that Pastor Steve walked us through, this, this unbreakable chain, those that he foreknew, he, he knew before they were ever born. In fact, he knew them before the earth was ever created. Those that he foreknew, he predestined. He just determined ahead of time their destiny. He said, this is the destiny for you. Those he called, he called them into salvation effectually. And those that he called, he justified. He made them right with God. And those he justified, he glorified. And, and what we saw was that our glorification is so matter of fact that even though it's future, it's talked about like it already happened because it's, it's already been purchased. It's already been given to us. So the question then is, friends, what are we going to do with this? Like what do we do with all of this that we've learned in Romans? All of that stuff. What's your response? Where are you right now? You might not understand how all of that 
fits with your situation right now, your difficult situation, but I promise you, God does. God does. So this Mother's Day, I'm going to plead with you to trust in God's logic. So we have questions, yes, lots of questions. But let's consider God's logic in this passage because it is beautiful. And not only is it logic, you're going to see as we go through the rest of the chapter, it's a logic that's mixed with love perfectly. So in our deepest, our most painful moments, we don't just want logic, like, okay, boom, boom, boom. But what you're going to see is this logic is based on love that God has for us. What has he done that gives us this confidence? The rest of verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Here it is. Here's the logic. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, then who can be against us? John Piper is not the first person to recognize the logic and the way that Paul writes. It's, it's a technique he's using. But John Piper did call verse 32 the solid logic of heaven. And verse 31 flows right into verse 32. So let's try to follow this logic best we can. All right? So first, God is for us. You see that right in the text. Right? God is for us. Now that's a colossal statement. That is a huge statement. When you think about what does it mean that God is for me? That is, that, that's, I mean, that changes everything, right? If God is for me, the argument goes, then who can be against me? So it's a rhetorical question. And in fact, it could be translated as since, not if. What it's saying, if you look at it literally, it says, since God is for us, then there's no one that's against us. That's what it's saying. But let's make sure we understand who are we talking about here. Is this every human being? Who is God really for? Whose side is God on? In the middle of the Civil War, a northern statesman, he, he rushed into President Abraham Lincoln's office. Here, here's what he said to him. He said, Mr. President, I'm terribly concerned that we get God on our side of this struggle. To which Lincoln said to the statesman, I'm not at all concerned about getting God on our side. I'm concerned about us getting on God's side. That's what he said. <laughs> That's good words, right? That's... That's understanding his Bible. The fact that we don't, we don't say, God, we need you on our side here. Would you, we pick you, God. You're on our team, right? No, it's like, how do we get on God's side? So when we talk about, like, if God is for us, the only if here is if you're on God's side. If you follow the book of Romans and you followed Romans 8 here, are you trusting in your own righteousness, your own good works, your own, like, morality, or are you trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? That's when we get on God's side. God is for those who are for his way of salvation, who have trusted in Jesus, who have submitted their life to him. So the only if in this passage here is if you are there. Are you on God's side? Are you trusting in yourself? Or have you just not even thought about Jesus at all? Like you're not sure if you're trusting with anything. Then that, my friend, is important today to consider, am I on God's side? Is God for me? Because that, that is a colossal statement. If God is for me, then, then nothing else can be against me. God for us is remarkable. If you think about how we started this book, right? Where did we start in this book? Did we start neutral with God, like Switzerland? Is that, is that how we started? If you go back to the, you know, chapter 1 and chapter 2, in fact, I'm going to read uh, ch uh, chapter 1, verse 18. 
Feel free to read it with me, but I'll read it to you. Chapter 118 says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So that's where we began, okay? We began not with God for us. We were God's enemies. The wrath of God lying upon us. So this is a remarkable statement. When we can say God is for us, what does that mean? That means we've gone completely to the other side. We started enemies under God's wrath. Now here we are, God's adopted children, and he is for us. God is only for us in this sense if we are his children. In the same way that a mom is for her children more than she is for any other children. We should recognize that God is for all people. Excuse me. God is for all people in this world. That is true. Right? Think about John 3.16. What does that say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. So God is for the whole world. God has provided a way of salvation. God is for every human in that sense, yes. But he's not for every human in the same way that he's for his adopted children that we find in this text. God is for us in this scripture in a different way, in a way that he is on our side because we're on his side. Romans 8.31 cuts both ways, so just think about this this morning a little bit. It is true that if God is for us, then no one can be against us, but it cuts both ways. It's also true that if God is against us, then who could be for us? If God is against you, which is how we are born as humans, Romans says, then it doesn't matter how great you were on earth, how famous you were, how rich you were, how much people liked you, what legacy you left, what music you made, what movies you made, it doesn't really matter. If if God is against you, then who's going to be for you? In the life to come, which lasts a lot longer than this life on earth, who will be for you? It's important to consider that in Romans 8.31. Now, we, we, we just reviewed, how is God for his children? Well, in the last couple of verses, if you glance at it, the spirit interceding for us, right? And then God working the good, the bad, the ugly, all together somehow for our greatest good, not the good we choose maybe, but for our good. And we know that because God knew us before the earth was created, because he predetermined our destination, because he called us, because he glorified us, that we know that God is for us. We've just seen some evidence here. This is that if-then logic. If God has done all these things, this golden chain, then he's for us. Is Paul saying we have no enemies? There's no one against us? Does a Christian have enemies? Do you have opposition in your life? I mean, Paul certainly did, right? Think about this guy. He was beaten and shipwrecked and imprisoned. and I mean, the list could go on and on. He had a lot of enemies. So when he says there is no one against us, He's not saying we have no enemies. Down in verse 44, he's going to say, we are being killed all the day long. We have enemies. We have opposition as Christians. There are many opponents for the believer. And in fact, you could argue that the closer you get to Jesus, the more you love him, the more opposition you're going to feel. I mean, Jesus was the man of sorrows, right? So there's going to be some opposition. But the point of verse 31 is that when Jesus is on your side, when, when, when God is for us, All the other opponents just kind of fall away. They just brush 
aside. It's like if we had a scale up here, a big scale, you know, the old-fashioned ones where you could like hang stuff on it, and we put a bag of peanuts on the one side. It might weigh it down a little bit. I don't, it just depends on how many peanuts, right? But we get, get the scale down, go down a little bit. But then we take an anvil and we drop it on the other side, and what happens? The, the peanuts just scatter. They're everywhere. So it's like, yeah, there's opponents, yes, and some of them are fierce, but if God's on our side, if that anvil is on our side, then none of that stuff's there. It just, it just goes away. Psalm 118.6, it's not on the screen, but the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The warrior Jesus Christ is on our side. So, so what could a person do to us? What's the worst thing that a person could do to you? The very worst. Take your life, right? Somebody could take your life. If someone were to take our life, they've ushered us into the presence of our Savior. So we win, they lose. So, So there's nothing that anyone could do that could steal the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. He is this anvil that outweighs all of the other opponents. And it could be that Paul has in his mind here a courtroom because if you glance down, you see in verse uh, 33 and 34, certainly that's his picture there, this condemnation, this accusation. It could be that the, that the picture we're supposed to get is this idea of you're sitting there, you're, in, you're, you're the defendant, and you're sitting in your chair, and here's the courtroom, and you know, the prosecuting attorney doesn't show up. Uh, in fact, the, the plaintiff doesn't even show up because they realize that your defense attorney is Jesus Christ. <laughs> and they're like, mm, yeah, I'm out. Yeah, I, 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 can't, I can't battle with that. I can't, I can't, you know what I mean? The idea is Jesus is on our side. He defends us. He intercedes for us. So there is nothing that anyone could say or do that would take away our confidence in him. Romans 8.32, let's read the whole thing here. Because this is the greatest proof. So yes, God is for us. We've seen the golden chain. But now we come to verse 32. This is the greatest proof that God is for you. Notice this believer. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Jesus, graciously give us all things? So let's walk through this. This beautiful logic that Paul gives us, that the Holy Spirit gives us. God did not spare his Son. Instead, he gave him up. That word, that, that phrase literally means handed him over. God handed over Jesus to who? I mean, when we think about the scriptures, if you know your gospels, you, you'd say, well, I thought Judas handed Jesus over to the Sanhedrin. He did. That's true. Judas hands Jesus over to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin takes Jesus and hands him over to Caiaphas. Caiaphas takes him, hands him over to Pilate. Pilate hands him over to the soldiers, and the soldiers crucify him. And Jesus even says about his own life, I give up my own, no one takes my life from me. I give it up of my own accord, my own will. So Jesus himself is giving himself over. But what we understand when we look at this text is that behind all of that, what's, what's actually going on is God the Father is handing Jesus over to death. Yes, those people are part of the scenario, but God is actually handing his son over to death. And, and again, I don't have these up there, but I'll read them for you. Isaiah 53 is pretty clear that God is at work here. This is Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Notice, Jesus, smitten by God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, 
He, that's God, the Father, he made him, that's Jesus, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus sin who knew no sin. He didn't know any sin, but God did that. God is behind the scenes doing all this. So these, these verses are kind of peculiar if you haven't, haven't carefully studied them before. It's kind of like, well, that's perplexing. Why, why would God do that? Why is God doing this thing to his son? There are many critics who have criticized this and called it divine child abuse and all of that. Oh, no, it's not that. When you look at the scriptures, you realize this is not a father that does not love his son. This is a father that loves his son immensely. Immensely. But he did not spare him. It reminds us of Abraham in Genesis 22. We just preached this passage the end of January. If you were here, we looked at that that text. And Abraham is asked to do the unthinkable, to sacrifice his son Isaac, his only son. And so we we, we read through that passage. And as Abraham raises his his hand to to plunge the knife, we all kind of hold our breath. Like, what, what is going on? And then right at that moment, over in the thicket, There is a ram, a substitute, and so Abraham does not need to. In fact, an an angel is staying his hand. A substitute. That's all designed to picture and foreshadow Jesus Christ. And the language is actually similar, except in this time, God did not spare his own son. For Jesus, there is no ram in the thickets. There is no substitute because he is the substitute. He's the substitute for you and for me, for all who trust in Jesus Christ. Abraham spares Isaac, but the father does not spare Jesus. Why? He gave him up, notice the phrase, for us all. For us all. That's substitution. That's what we call the substitutionary atonement. That means in our place, instead of us being sacrificed, instead of us receiving the due penalty of our actions and our sin, Jesus receives that. But what parent could do this? I mean, think about that on this Mother's Day. Moms, could you do that? Could you sacrifice your kid? I can tell you pretty unequivocally, I could not. I'm doing whatever it takes to spare my daughters. Certainly, like Abraham, God desired to spare his son, right? I mean, he, he desired to. Certainly, God had the power to. It wasn't just that he, he wanted to, but he couldn't. Or that, or that he didn't want to, but he could. He, he wanted to, and he could. Why did he not? And the reason he did not, the text says, is because there was no other way to spare us. There's no other way. Jesus in Gethsemane, what does he say to the Father? He says, if there's any other way, God, if there's any other way, would you, would you take this cup from me? And of course, Jesus knows there is no other way, because in order to spare us, he cannot spare his son. If he spares his son... We don't get spared. That's what happens. Well, that might bring the question to your mind. Does that mean that we as God's sons are worth more than Jesus? We as God's sons, are we worth more than Jesus, that he would sacrifice Jesus for us? No. The answer to that is no. Romans 5.10 says this, and I'm going I'm to flip back there and read it out of the text here. Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Notice, when we were reconciled to God, while we were enemies, 
So, so Jesus doesn't look at us and say, well, you're worth more to me than my son, so I will sacrifice my son for you. We were enemies. His son is beloved. His son is perfect. So that can't be it. What it does show us is that God is so incredibly committed, incredulously committed, really, to this plan of salvation that he, the Spirit, and the Son have created, that he will do whatever it takes. He will, he will hold nothing back. He will spare no expense, even the expense of his son's life, because it's, it's about salvation. It's about what God is doing, ultimately to glorify himself. Now, maybe your thoughts go a little different direction. You're thinking, man, it doesn't seem right that God gave up his son for me. Like, I'm not worth it. Jesus is perfect. I'm a screw-up. Jesus never did anything wrong. I've done a lot of stuff wrong. I mean, no disrespect, God, but it sounds like a bad move that you gave up Jesus for, for me. And won't you understand this morning, brother or sister, it's not even about you and me. It's not even about our inherent worth. Yes, God loves us, otherwise he wouldn't have done this. But it's ultimately not about your worth. You are certainly not worth more than Jesus Christ. I am not worth more than Jesus Christ. It's not about you. It's about what God's doing in you, the work of salvation, which ultimately makes you more like Jesus Christ and shines glory on God. So that's different than saying, oh, I must be more important than Jesus. No, or I'm not important at all. God is doing something that's not even about you and me. We're part of something, a bigger masterpiece. Are you getting that in Romans? It's not even, a, I mean, if, if, if I've learned one thing in Romans, it's like, okay, it's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's about salvation. It's about this ultimate work that God is doing. And we just want to make that really clear because sometimes people lead with like, listen, you are so important that God did this for you. You are important. But Jesus is important. And God gave up Jesus. Are you starting to see the logic? If God did this, what won't he do? He'll do anything. There's nothing that will hold back his hand. And because of this, he's for us. He is for us if we're in Christ. Believer, he already did the hardest thing possible for you. To turn his back on his son, to, to, to hand his son over, he already did the very hardest thing that he could ever do for you. Is he going to stop now? You want to talk about illogical, that would be illogical. To sacrifice your son with the express purpose to save somebody and make them more like Jesus and then just not do it. That's not going to happen. God already planned this and he's done it. And there is no greater logic than if he would do this with Jesus and he'll do whatever it needs to happen in my life. He's got me. He's got all the bad things. He's got all the good things. He's got everything. Again, uh, Romans 5.10, I read it for just a little bit ago, but Romans 5.10, again, another if-then statement here. It says, if while, we were enemies with, uh, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall, shall we be saved by his life. If God did this for you while you were his enemy, isn't he going to take care of you as his son and his daughter? Yeah, that's the idea. So, God is for us. Secondly, with Christ comes all things. This is the logic Paul's bringing us through here. Okay, God is for us, who can be against us, and with Christ comes all things. And I've worded it that way because I think that's what the text says. Will he not with Christ also graciously give us all things? With Christ comes all things. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And Paul uses another common logical device here, an argument from the greater to the lesser. And this isn't the first time he's done this in Romans, but here it's like really clear, okay? It's really clear. Which is harder, for God to give us Christ or for God to give us all things? You might think, well, Maybe all things? No, Christ is greater than all things. Christ is supreme. Christ is more valuable than all things put together in the whole universe. So if he gave us Christ, will he not give us all things? Doesn't that come with Christ? If he's already moved heaven and earth to make you his child, giving up his son, certainly he will give you fill in the blank. And that doesn't mean the fill in the blank is whatever you want. It means whatever you need to accomplish what he has for you. Maybe this helps as an illustration. If I stand here and I lift this pulpit, you know, okay, I can do that. I can lift this pulpit. If I can lift this pulpit, then it would only make sense that I should be able to lift this Bible, which was already on the pulpit, and I lifted the whole pulpit. God's already done, he's already moved heaven and earth. He's already given the life of his son, given up the most valuable, precious thing in the whole universe. So won't he give you all things? All things aren't worth more than Christ. You might be saying, sweet, so if I follow Christ, I'll get all things? Everything I want? No. That makes God into Santa Claus. That's not what God is like. But remember the context, what all things means. In 2 Peter 1, we, we read that his divine power has granted to us, notice, all things that pertain to life and godliness. So through Jesus, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. What that tells me is that I have everything I need in this life, and I have everything I need in this life to be more like Jesus, godliness. I will have all things related to those, not all the things that I want, but all the things that I need in order to be like Jesus Christ. And when it uses the phrase, when Paul uses the phrase, with him, it's like everything comes on the coattails of Jesus, right? So with Jesus, on his coattails comes all things. Jesus is God. He's king. He's adorned with all things. He's robed in the universe. He is everything, and so everything kind of comes with him. Anything you need, anything for godliness... Romans 11.36, so here's what we're getting in a couple chapters, okay? This, I think, is on the screen for you. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's referencing God the Father. Jesus is God. All things are from God. All things are through him. To him are all things. All things exist for him. Colossians 1, you might know this verse. For by him all things were created. This is Jesus is talking about. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. I, want, I just want you to think about that. If Jesus holds all things together and all things come through him, then everything comes on his coattails. To have Jesus is to have everything. To not have Jesus is to have nothing, at least the stuff that really matters. So when you're going through your life and you're thinking, man, I don't know, am I going to have what I need to be a mom today? 
Because that's a valid question. <laughs> if you have Jesus, you have all things that you need. It comes with him. One takeaway from this morning's test, text is that God is not stingy, but he's generous. I mean, notice he's, he's willing to give us all things. He's basically handed us a blank check, spiritually speaking, for whatever we need. Temptation, suffering, anything. Nothing does not fit into all things, right? 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ, and Christ is God. So everything is yours, the Bible says. Everything. Even life and death. Romans 8.32 is calling us to get back to Christ on the cross, to, to think about Jesus and God's display of love there so that when we go through our life, we have these handles to hold on to. Because there's going to be times, I promise you, where you just can't see straight. You don't know what to even believe. Maybe even Romans 8.28 is not cutting it because everything's so raw. So you just hold on to these handles, and that is that Jesus was given to me for me. God turned his back on his son. If he did that, then he's going to take care of all things. I close with this. Real good litmus test for your heart, all right? Which part of verse 32 do you get more excited about? Which part of verse 32? So, you know, verse 32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Is that like what really gets you excited? Or the second half? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Which are you like, yes? Because that might reveal a little bit about your heart or my heart. Are you more excited about Christ or more excited about all things? Some people pray and they come to church when things get difficult. Why? You know, they, they know they need some Jesus. They need Jesus. They, things are not going well. So I'll go to church and hopefully my life will improve, right? Some people pray and come to church only when things are going well. And the point is, if you have nothing but Jesus, if all you have is Jesus, will you still follow him? Will you still love him? Will you still trust in him when the, when the, the storm is going on and you don't know what to, to think? Will you still hold on to him and say, well, I have you, Jesus. That's probably it right now, but I have you. So I just got to trust that you're going to give me all things I need. The worries of our life are all on the all things side, that, that half of the verse. All things. That's where we worry. That's where we have anxiety, not on the God gave us Jesus. That's solid. That's happened. So I said on Easter that the resurrection is the exclamation mark of Romans 8.28, right? For all things work together for good. Resurrection. Can you see this morning that the cross is the exclamation mark built into Romans 8.32? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us, graciously give us with him all things?